The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. We're at a place in some jurisdictions now where even just the name client earth, because we've had so much success sort of mm. with things like the air quality, even just the name client earth, when lawmakers or, or decision makers see that, mm. they sit up and take notice mm. and they make the decision properly. In today's podcast, I speak to Anna Heslarp, a lawyer with Client Earth. We talked about the route that she took to join Client Earth, an organisation that didn't even exist at the time she was setting out to do environmental work. I've known Anna for a long time and know how many sacrifices she has made to do the work that she wants to do. She has a passion which enables her to work the hours that are required to, to meet the demands of her clients. And in this case, the clients really, every one of us and our sort of furry and floral friends. The hearing. Anna, thank you so much for joining us uh, and thank you for inviting us to Client Earth's office. Now, tell us a little bit more about Client Earth and uh, just about where we are. Yeah, so uh, we're here at our London offices, uh, which is based just on the corner of London Fields. Um, We are an environmental charity, uh, which is a legal charity. So Mm. we're all sort of environmental lawyers and campaigners. Um, we use the law to try to protect the environment and uh, yeah, and improve uh, the world. Well, basically. I'm looking out the window. It's a fantastic view of a London field. It's a glorious spring day uh, and it's a good place to work, but you're not here usually. I'm based in our Brussels office, which is not quite as green as this. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> it's like Brussels. It's amazing, amazingly lucky to have an office where you can kind of look out on green space in London. So yeah, yeah we're very, very lucky. Yeah. Um, and it's a sort of weird little eco building hidden in the corner of I say, there's quite a lot of green inside indoors yeah. as well um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very pleasant working environment we I'm definitely sure. like our plants that's something we do yeah. have in the Brussels office we um, yeah we try <laughs> to make it like a jungle inside to avoid the greyness from outside so talk us a little bit through how you got here because mm-hmm. this is clearly something that you are passionate about mm-hmm. uh, you, you already mentioned the campaigning element but what was your route to client earth yeah so my route through the law is probably a little bit strange compared to most lawyers. Um, I trained in a medium-sized uh, regional firm. Did you do a law practice. Degree? I did a law degree, okay. yes. Uh, straight through from law degree to um, law school training contracts yeah. the whole way through uh, in a kind of medium-sized firm mm. in the Midlands. And then qualified into a team that did public law with an environmental angle. Okay. So it was kind of judicial review, um, mostly working for local authorities and public bodies, mm. including the two big nature conservation organisations in the UK. So uh, English Nature, as it then was, right. Natural England and Countryside Council for Wales. Oh. So um, we did loads of kind of judicial review protection for them and public law for them. Mm. And got I got into sort of the environment and planning stuff. I've always been passionate about the environment, but I never really thought I could do it as a career mm. but that was fantastic fun and really really interesting um, and I then decided that that was definitely where my heart lay mm. and actually in a private firm what you end up doing is a little bit of property and a little bit yeah. of you know helping corporate entities out of cleaning up sites and all that sort of stuff which never sat very well with me okay. um, so I decided I wanted to be a lawyer in an environmental NGO and at that point, Client Earth didn't exist. Mm. So there were about four solicitors in environmental NGOs in the whole country. Um, and I sort of spoke to them and asked them what I should do. And they said to me, you need to get some experience of actually working in an NGO to prove that you are committed to it. 
Okay, so so your and uh, so those contacts came through working in that firm, yeah. through your training contract, through qualification, mm-hmm. um, and gave you that network. Yeah. But, uh, how how easy, like, <laughs> how committed did you have to be? Because there were four jobs, and presumably all four jobs were full of that. Yeah, time. they were, they were, um, and they still are. I think um, probably with some <laughs> of the same people. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a sort of long shot. But what I did was I left uh, the law for a bit, and I went and worked in a campaigning role in a in an, an environmental NGO. So there were no jobs for, I mean, it wasn't just going to walk into a solicitor's job. So I had to go and do campaigning, which actually was really fantastic experience because I think as a young lawyer, you think that you're not trained to do anything else Mm. and you don't necessarily see how your skills can be adapted to other things. Yeah, especially after the LPC. I can just do law, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I know how to write a will or I know how to, I might be able to do different areas of law, Mm. but you don't necessarily see that you could go and do, um, you know, lobbying MPs yeah. and um, doing PR. Mm. I had to do a load of TV work, which I'd never done before, and writing press releases and all sorts of stuff that, yeah. you know, I would never have done in my normal day job. So that was a really great experience. But how easy, how easy did that come, uh, stepping across? Well, first of all, I, I suspect, and I'm guessing mm-hmm. now, that there was a financial element <laughs> to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, both being in the charities sector particularly, mm. but, but also how high could you go into it? Yeah. At, sort of at a senior level, I guess, started the box yeah it was quite a junior position um i took a sort of 50 percent pay cut to go <laughs> from a private practice to working as a campaigner in an ngo um but it was fascinating and mm. i learned an awful lot from it i did that for about two years and whereabouts were you based that was in cardiff okay yeah a, 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 an organization called the woodland trust okay yeah um which is quite a sort of small uh, ish uh, charity um but really really interesting and it was a really good learning experience i then took a sort of year and volunteered for those different legal departments in those NGOs that had solicitors. So I went and did six months at Friends of the Earth and I went and did six months at WWF. Wow. And kind of worked with them to actually kind of get the hands-on experience of bringing the law and the campaign yeah. together. And, and how did you sustain <laughs> yourself? Well, uh, yeah, it was a very expensive year. Mm. Um, I had bought a house when I was a trainee and had to sell it when I moved to Cardiff. So I had some yeah, money to be able that, to yeah. kind of keep myself ticking over. But yeah, it's... Before uh, the crash. Obviously, it's... yeah, obviously internships are... Uh, if they're not paid, yeah. are very expensive to do. And I was lucky I was able to do that. Yeah. So um, you, you mentioned a few places you were working. Mm. Uh, but uh, following the Woodland Trust, where did that take you? Um, were you were you sort of pushing back offers left, right and centre? No. Or was it a case of knocking on doors? Yeah. So I contacted the lawyers at WWF to begin yeah. with and asked them if I could come and work with them for a bit. And they sort of looked at my profile and said, yes, absolutely, come and... I mean, if you're offering to work for free, yeah, right, well, yeah. most people will say yes. The qualified, a qualified <laughs> solicitor offering to work for free is probably not going to get yeah, turned yeah. down very often. So I went and did that for, uh, I think, about five or six months. And then I went to Friends of the Earth and did some time with them as well. Mm. Um, and on the basis of that, you know, making other contacts, I then got a job at the RSPB. And that, again, wasn't a solicitor's job. Right. It was a it was what they call a planning casework job. So kind of more on the sort of not quite planning law, but planning yeah. cases. So bringing okay. appeals against uh, you know. So so some element of the law involved mm. is uh, you, you might not be using make sort of full use of your uh, yes. qualifications, but um, and, and and during that time, because I I, I I should. Uh, let people know that I've known you for a long time yeah. and we we'll maybe talk a little bit about that later um, although not too much uh, for, for both of our uh, um, uh, but but the time at the RSPB you were sort of, your name was 
sort of floating around all over the place. Mm. You mentioned the TV, you mentioned the press, but you took on some sort of pretty hefty roles. Um, at the RSPB, we did we did quite s- some sort of high profile cases. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's a big team at the RSPB that works on protecting sites, which is they have a, a huge team of people all across the country that work on protecting sites, and the case officers who are kind of centrally located there mm. are sort of bringing the expertise from all over the place. So it's almost right. a sort of project management role. So sometimes you're the sort of spokesperson for that, but you're bringing in experts who are yeah. an expert on a particular type of bird or a particular type of habitat okay. and planning experts and legal experts and all sorts of people so. yeah so we yeah. so um how many, how many like typically an organization mm. like that trust, how many lawyers would be in-house and how many were brought in from the outside the rspb has one in-house lawyer wow yeah and that's a big Full organization time. yeah it's a big big organization someone like wwf has two i think right maybe three okay um so yeah there's not there's not a huge in-house resource it's 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 expensive to hire lawyers, even in the charity sector, yeah. um, and often they're not the, the sort of main priority. Yeah, well, both in-house and then bringing them in as mm. uh, sort of outside counsel. Yeah. Um, did you work with lawyers, um, barristers, solicitors, mm-hmm. and, and were they specialists themselves, or were they people who would just turn their, their skills to whatever was required? Yeah, so so in all of those places, we've worked with a, a lot of kind of pro bono lawyers. Okay. We do sometimes, here especially, we do sometimes pay lawyers as mm. well. Uh, when we have enough funds to do it, obviously, it's it's nice to be able to pay people. Yeah. Um, but, but we do have to rely on pro bono lawyers. Mm. And there are some who, who really do specialise in environment and planning. Mm. There are others who specialise in a, a kind of public law and a judicial review on... Okay something like the environment can be very interesting or European lawyers who specialise in EU law as well can be quite interested well okay you've mentioned it already <laughs> but, uh, but let's talk, talk me through mm. the next stages which was from the RSPB yeah. um, you getting uh, itchy feet uh, mm-hmm. or was, was, was it an opportunity that presented itself so it was kind of a bit of both I was in, really enjoying the work at the RSPB but I did want to get back into actually being a lawyer mm. um, and it just at the same time uh, the European Commission were looking for somebody to take uh, legal cases against the UK so popular choice uh, yes uh, absolutely <laughs> it's perfect timing wow. um, so, so they, they take cases that are called infringement cases where if a member state is not implementing EU law properly mm. then the European Commission can take that member state to court for failure to implement EU law properly and they had a backlog of UK cases and they oh. needed a UK lawyer to come and help them Is that because the UK was particularly bad or was that uh, just because no, 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 there was, no, that was just that internal okay. issues at the Commission that had meant people had been moved around and yeah. they just had, had a particularly high number of cases so um, they asked me if I would come and, and join them for a, a, a year to help them clear that backlog Okay. And in the end, I did two years uh, with the commission doing that work. And I worked on Irish cases as well, which mm. was really interesting um, before coming to Client Earth. Tell me a little bit more about working at the European Commission, because yeah. that's uh, that's surely a challenging role. And, and now more than ever, perhaps. But uh, what was what was your experience like? Whereabouts were you based over there? Yeah, so I was based in Brussels uh, at the um, the sort of the department that deals with environment, so it's yeah. called DG Environment. Um, it was a fantastic experience, to be honest. Um, really, really fascinating uh, to be able to look right across the whole of the environmental kind of laws. Mm. So not sort of specialising in biodiversity or water or waste, but you, you can kind of look across all of them, mm. um, which was really fa- fantastic for me. And 
able to sort of make an impact uh, in a way that you you can't necessarily in an NGO. So mm. in an NGO, we do a lot of really good work and we do have an impact, but it's sometimes like pushing a huge rock up a hill. Yeah. Whereas if you are the European Commission and you can write a letter to a member state saying you need to fix this, yeah. they will fix it. It was amazing to me. <laughs> so <laughs> it's know, a power trip. They don't <laughs> always fix it, but, but sometimes you could get things sorted immediately, which was... Just wonderful, kind of, you know. And who typically would you be corresponding with on that basis? So there are people in the ministries at each mm. uh, kind of member state who are responsible for sort of coordinating communication mm. with the EU. And then they would sort of bring in different civil servants from different departments, depending on the case or mm. depending on the, the issue. And uh, are you basically suing the UK, as you've said, mm. uh, or bringing, sorry, bringing, bringing cases against the against Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, in effect, suing the UK, my language, not, not yours. Yeah. Um, uh, but but uh, how popular does that make you, <laughs> A, at home, um, and B, perhaps with your friends and family? Well, so it's funny because a lot of those cases that are brought, some of them are brought on the Commission's own initiative, mm. but a lot of them are brought as a result of complaints from citizens. Okay. So you as a citizen can complain to the European Commission that EU law is not being implemented properly. Right. Um, and, and a lot of the cases are based on those complaints. A lot of the cases as well, when we think about, oh yeah, bringing a case against the mm. UK, those cases are about improving the environment for mm. people, yeah. right? So it's about yeah. stopping sewage from being flushed out into the sea, yeah. or it's about, you know, stopping protected sites from being destroyed, or, um, you know, from people in garages who are having to breathe in toxic fumes because the yeah. government hasn't put in place the right, um, you know, laws to stop this fuel from being burned or whatever. Yeah. So it's those sorts of things where actually you're protecting the citizen. So at a high level, it looks like the commission bullying mm. the member state, but actually it's just making sure that the laws that the member states agreed to are actually being right. implemented fairly across all the member states yeah. as well. So if you're a business operating in France, you're not at an unfair disadvantage because France isn't implementing any yeah. law that Belgium is implementing, yeah. Yeah. you know? And generally speaking, uh, how either good or poor is the UK in environmental issues? It's it's not the best, but it's not the worst. <laughs> um, Diplomatic. There are some. I can see a future for you. <laughs> there are some member states that are really, really do struggle to implement right. environmental laws. Partly because of their national systems, you know, they devolve everything down to the mayor of each individual town. Okay. And if this mayor doesn't want to do it, and that mayor can't understand the law. And, you know, so the UK doesn't tend to have those sorts of problems. They're yeah. much better at implementing them at high level. The problem in the UK is that sometimes they will agree a law and agree quite a high standard mm. and they'll push for high standards when things are being legislated mm. and then they don't want to put it in place yeah. because there's an economic argument um, yeah. because there's a lobby from a particular business or a particular sector um, or because it's difficult to do mm. I mean that's the case with the with the air quality stuff you know the UK like many member states is you know kind of 10 years behind on implementing that legislation yeah. on getting actually reaching those those limits to keep you know, safe air for for, mm. for the population, probably not because it wanted to, yeah. but because it, it didn't slips. take the measures yeah. that it needed to because it was too expensive or it was too politically difficult. Yeah. So those are the things that we come across in, in member states like the UK. And how do you, um, well, first of all, as a commission, but how would it work with each member state to try mm. and put those things into effect? Mm. Or is it just a case of you need to do this 
off you go. Mm. And, and just following up on the back of that, uh, what are the penalties? Yeah, so the way that the Commission runs it with member states, there's a sort of dialogue between the Commission and the member state where they say, okay, well, you haven't done this. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had a complaint or we've noticed that this hasn't been correctly implemented. And mm. then the member state has a chance to respond. And there's a formal process. There's a, there's a, an informal process of that in that normally there's a meeting with every member state once a year, at least okay. once a year, where the commission go and they talk through all of the cases. Um, and there is a system where they can have those conversations. It's used a little bit less now than it was when I was there. Mm. But there's also a formal process in the treaty. So there's a letter of formal notice, which is the kind of the commission formally saying here is where you have breached the law, and the member state has a response. Then there's a, a reasoned opinion which says, no, 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 your response isn't good enough, mm. here's where you've breached the law, and the member state has a response, and then you go to court. And only once you've got a judgment from the court saying, yes, the member state is in breach, you then have to give the member state a chance to comply, okay. and if they don't, then you can go for a fine. Okay. So there is an option to have fines against the member state, but it's quite far down the yeah. line. So you've already mentioned the clean air mm-hmm. work that you've been doing, and uh, that was uh, Client Earth. Yes. So how did that transition go from the commission mm-hmm. to Client Earth? Again, was it a, a case of just uh, hit your feet, <laughs> or, or did, did that present itself? Yeah, so so uh, the commission had kind of, I was on a sort of short-term contract, Contract, I guess at the commission of course. because I was clearing this backlog um, and when that ran out it happened to be just after the Brexit vote had happened and it was clear that there was not going to be a great <laughs> sort of amount of money being put forward to yeah. bring more cases against the UK they are still implementing EU law so, yeah. you know and the commission still has cases against the UK but it obviously wasn't going to be a priority that it might have been yeah. before to employ me um, and Client Earth I, I had known for a while I actually did a little stint with Client Earth in between those two commission contracts. Oh, right. um, so, and yes. that was over in Brussels? No, that was here that in, was in London. London. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it just happened that when I was leaving the commission, the chap who had been running the clean air litigation here for many years had gone off on, was about to go off on sabbatical and oh. said, would I cover his sabbatical? Got it. And that's how I ended up uh, back at Client Earth, yeah. Wow. So um, tell us a little bit more about how Client Earth operates. It's an yeah. NGO. Mm-hmm. Um I'm, I'm, well, how many lawyers are here for a start? Let's start with that. Oh, how many lawyers? I don't know how many lawyers we've got. We've got about 150 staff yeah. worldwide. Okay. Um, and those are, you know, we've got we've got lawyers, we've got legal researchers, we've got campaigners, okay. you know, HR people, IT people, and people communications wizards. Dropping yeah. over each, each, each yes, one of these. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and uh, most people are based here in London. We have quite a lot of staff here in London. There's mm. about 30 of us in Brussels, about... 15 in Warsaw. Okay. And then we've got a small office in Berlin. We've got a small office in Madrid. Uh, we've got about seven or eight people, I think, in Beijing now. Oh, gosh. Um, and two people in New York. So we're sort of spread all over the place, um, which is great. The way that we do things is we try to use the law in different kind of creative ways to improve the environment. So what that means is sometimes... Uh, kind of helping with drafting of laws to make sure that they're drafted in a way that they're going to be helpful and they're going to actually have the right impact. Uh, And is that that pretty much any country in the world that you're talking about or is it... So we operate mostly in the UK and at EU level uh, at the moment. Mm. Um, The operations outside of the EU are sort of growing bit by bit Mm. but, um, you know, this organisation is only about 11 years old yeah and it started in an office near the temple with three people wow. 11 years ago and wow. now there's 150 people across and do, do, what do you think the reason the for that is 
Are people taking, well, obviously we know about climate change mm. a lot more, um, uh, general issues, uh, blue planets and yeah, yeah. the like have really shone a light on this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and probably more recently than you've been working on these things. Yeah. Uh, is that supporting you? Is that working against you? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a hugely important. If, if people are, are paying attention to environmental issues, then that, that's really helpful to us. And, and part of what we do is is also raising profile of environmental yeah. issues, you know? Um, we can take as much litigation as we feel like, but if, mm. if nobody's putting pressure on their politicians or, you know, then, then the litigation by itself probably isn't enough. It has to be a sort of combination of these things. And we work with other NGOs on that as mm. well. So we don't just sort of client earth elbows its way into a new country and brings right. a legal case. We always work with local lawyers and we always work with local NGOs to try to mm. kind of build a movement as much as us coming in and doing a... And what, what's your uh, specific role? Mm. Um, because I imagine it's not just what you would typically think of as an in-house lawyer. No. So there's a lot of there's a lot of my job that isn't law in a way. Mm. Um, so, so I'm part of what we call our strategic litigation team. Um, and what we try to do is bring legal interventions in, in countries all across Europe, basically, and to do that in a strategic way. So we will look across a kind of problem. Um, Mine happens to be wildlife law. So we're looking at the implementation of the Habitats Directive. And what we do is kind of look across the piece and say, okay, we can have that sort of view at EU level Mm. where we say, okay, well, is there a case in the Czech Republic that could be a really super important case, but an NGO there might not have the expertise or the money or the know-how to bring that up to the right level to make it a strategic case? Can we get a question in that case referred to the Court of Justice? Can we put in a complaint to the EU that will get to an infringement proceeding so that we can get an impact that's bigger than Mm. just that maybe Mm. one lake in the Czech Republic, you know? Yeah. So so that's an active process of yes. seeking out these cases that could yeah. potentially be landmark or well, law changing. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes we sort of do creative thinking, thinking to kind of think up those cases as well. Okay. So, so uh, you know, there are opportunities to, to make legal interventions that no one has done before um, or that maybe nobody has tried. So we recently challenged a decision of the European Investment Bank to finance a, a power plant in northern Spain. It's a very small power plant. It's okay. not one of their biggest investments. Yeah. But we think that investment decisions of the European Investment Bank should be subject to an, what's called an internal review procedure under the Aarhus regulation, which is about environmental Sorry, the, justice. Sorry, which regulation? Aarhus uh, regulation, okay. <laughs> which is about environmental justice at EU level, right? So you as a citizen should be able to, or we as an NGO should mm. be able to, on your behalf, ask for decisions of European institutions that affect the environment to be reviewed, to make sure that they are in accordance with environmental law. Okay. And so no one's ever asked the European Investment Bank to do that before and they kind of went, oh, not for us. Um, So we're taking them to the Court of Justice to see if we can, you know, get get them to do those sorts of internal reviews. So it's these sorts of things where maybe just no one's never ever tried it or, or people haven't had the... Um, you know, the, the the necessary tools to be able to try it, mm. that we hope to open doors for people so that there will be more access to kind of environmental justice. So part of it's, I suppose, keeping your own house in order. Yeah. Um, that's what it sounds like. Mm. But surely going through the court process is an expensive way of doing that. Is, mm-hmm. that, is, that, is that the only way or is there sort of other workings going on at the same time? Yeah, so it's not always a court process. Um, and to be fair, court processes are not as expensive in other places as they are here in the UK. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
Noted. So that's that's one thing to say. But yeah, litigation, you know, should be quite rightly a last resort. So we do things like working with legislators to try to get laws you know, proper laws mm. in place in the first place. We mm. then do things working with people to try to get laws implemented properly. And that can be kind of political interventions. Mm. It can be making administrative complaints in some cases, you know, making complaints to regulators mm. rather than going directly okay. to court. We don't always just kind of plough straight yeah. into yeah. court. But sometimes that litigation is really, really helpful. Mm. And, and it does move the dial in a way that some of the other campaigning tools that we have just don't. Yeah. The, and and we're, at, we're at a place in some jurisdictions now where even just the name client earth, because we've had so much success sort of mm. with things like the air quality, even just the name client earth, when when lawmakers or, or decision makers see that, mm. they sit up and take notice mm. and they make the decision properly. Yeah. Well, you, you keep mentioning clean air. Let's, yeah. let's, let's talk about yeah. clean air because this has been something you've been heavily involved in initially, obviously yes. mentioned as a sabbatical, but yeah. you've really again, being the face of, of this campaign yeah. in many ways, certainly in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about and uh, not necessarily who your client is, but mm. who you are acting on behalf of or representing yeah. and um, and who against. Yeah. So we're all in-house lawyers. So effectively, our client is our CEO. Okay. Um, so client earth is our client in a way Um, and we we don't really act for external organisations we sometimes work with them and bring in external lawyers but but we don't kind of take on cases for the public or anything like that Um, with the clean air litigation that started a a long time ago sort of before my time the original case that we brought was in 2011 and that was against the UK against the UK government against DEFRA um, and that was for failure to kind of meet the limit values that are in that piece of legislation, the Ambient Air Quality Directive, um, and failure to come up with a, a, a legitimate plan mm. about how they were going to do that as quickly mm. as possible. And it's important to say we lost that case in the High Court. Wait, we what lost year was that? that? That was 2011. Okay. We lost that case in the Court of Appeal about two years later. Right. Um, and we appealed that case to the Supreme Court. And when we got to the Supreme Court, they said, oh, actually, client has got a point here. Uh-huh. Um, and they referred a couple of questions to the Court of Justice. And it came back and we, we won in the Supreme Court. And the government was ordered to prepare a new air quality plan. Mm. Um, government went off and prepared the new air quality plan. And it was... Terrible. <laughs> so we had to take them back to court again. And, and when you say the government, mm. exactly what are we talking about? So, so the cases were brought against uh, DEFRA. Okay. And then in the last couple of cases, we also included the Welsh ministers because ah. Wales had also not um, done a terribly good job of preparing <laughs> a plan. Um, so, the, yeah, the cases were primarily brought against DEFRA. Obviously, DEFRA work with Department of Transport and Treasury and everybody else to put that plan together, but yeah. they're the main... Okay. They're the main... Um, Kind of responsible. Uh, and, and, and what does it mean? I, I, challenging legislation mm-hmm. is, well, where do you even start? So we weren't challenging the legislation. We were challenging their execution of their duty under EU law. Okay. So all member states had, had a duty to meet these limits mm. by a certain date. And if they didn't, they were supposed to come up with a plan with measures in that would reduce the air pollution in the shortest possible time. Right. Um, and we said that plan isn't good enough because you're not aiming to do it in the shortest possible time. Okay. Summary. And do you provide then guidance around how they can do it better? Or is it a case of you need to go back and rethink it? So... Courts in the UK are very mm. reluctant to say, 
this is the exact measure you should take yeah. to the government. Yeah. Because that's just not how our judicial yeah. review system is, is set up. Um, we would have our ideas about the sorts okay. of things that they would do. But actually, to be honest, in those cases against DEFRA, we relied on their own evidence mm. in in most of those cases. We had an expert who helped us to interpret that evidence. Presumably but they have was, their own experts as yes, well. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was very clear that what they needed to do was tackle diesel vehicles in towns and right, cities. okay. But that was politically very difficult for them or they didn't want mm. to do it or there wasn't an appetite for it. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, we didn't say this is the measure that you must take. But what we did say to the court was their evidence clearly shows that if they took this measure, it would reduce the time taken to mm. meet those limit values. So what happened? So what happened was the government has been ordered to prepare a new plan now three times. Right. And each time it does get slightly better. Okay. It's just not quite... Well, that's progress. It's not as fast as we would like it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the court process takes so long as well, and this review process presumably takes so long, that we're getting further and further behind in where we should have been already. We, yeah, I mean... As a country. Yeah, sure. we would like them to have met these limit values in 2010. So where are we now? So uh, the government has sort of now split up these plans into quite a piecemeal uh, mm. sort of uh, we're in a situation where lots of local authorities have got to make their own plans because I remember seeing Sadiq Khan on the news I think talking about this yeah. um, alongside I think you on the news talking about Possibly. this yeah. um, uh, so, so this is this is very high profile this is right at the very top yeah yeah. so this has been a really really high profile case for us and uh, all the way through actually sort of right the way through the litigation it's been very very high profile uh, and part of the job has, and a sort of strange part of the job for a lawyer is that I have had to sort of learn how to do TV interviews and yeah. <laughs> be on the Today programme and be grilled and, and sort and of news do news night, night and things course, like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. So, uh, first of all, um, do you not have a comms team? <laughs> or, or if you do, how are they supporting you in this? Yeah, yeah. So, we have a great comms team. They're really good. Um, but they like to put the lawyers out to do the talking because we <laughs> know about the law. Yeah. Um, and we're also you know, we know how much we can say about our cases. It's actually one of the challenges, and some of my colleagues really don't like doing comms for this reason. Yeah. As lawyers, we're trained to sort of keep our cases very quiet and not talk about them. Yeah. But of course, in a campaigning organisation and mm. raising the profile of this stuff, I mm. think has been hugely influential. For sure, the Mayor of London, mm. I'm sure, so I'm sure Sadiq Khan really cares about air quality, but yeah. I'm not sure that we would have had the push forward that we've had to have a low emissions, ultra low emissions zone and so on, mm. had it not been for the fact that this was such a high profile issue. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, they, they give us, you know, I've had some training from <laughs> journalists. You're doing, a, how, how to you're go doing out. a great job right now uh, <laughs> right. under this intense grilling. That how to go out and talk to, you know, how to, how to sit in interviews and how to not say anything silly. And, um, you know, and we talk through all of the you know, difficult questions that we might yeah. get asked. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, when you're taking these sorts of cases, there are people who don't like it, mm. you know. Mm. And on the, on the air quality stuff, mm. for sure, we've had a lot of pushback from kind of motor manufacturers and traders and those sorts of groups who, who are really worried about what mm. the implications will be. Or people who, you know, drive into the city for business and are worried. Mm. So you need to be able to deal with those sorts of um, sometimes quite controversial conversations as well 
um, and sometimes those happen on live TV. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it, no, I'm very impressed. Um, but now moving on, mm. um, you've got a relatively new role mm-hmm. um, with Wildlife. Yes. Now explain how that came about because this is part of a, a longer term plan. Yes, yeah. So, so we have. Uh, I mean, my sort of background, as I said, because I worked at the RSPB mm. and I worked at the Woodland Trust and for those nature conservation organisations. Wildlife is very much kind of in my background. Mm. So when this opportunity came along, I kind of was really excited about it. And sort of, <laughs> I really want to work on that. Um, we've got a kind of some funding for five years to go and bring this sort of build up this this uh, project across the EU to try to protect um, wildlife and to try and improve the interpretation of the Habitats Directive mostly across the EU. So it's about kind of finding the best cases and um, I have a team of lawyers um, in Central and Eastern Europe and I'm just about to get one in the Mediterranean um, to kind of bring those cases and we work with we work with lawyers and we work with NGOs in each member state so Mm. we'll find the right case and then we'll kind of work strategically with those people partly to build capacity there as well Mm. the idea isn't that we end up with a client earth office in every country you know what we want to do is have fantastic lawyers on the ground Mm. who've taken some of these cases and who can then go off and do the next one you know without us and are you worried that this becomes it's sounding a lot like a project management yeah. I know it's hugely complicated across many yeah. countries and languages uh, project management role yeah how how involved in the law do you think you'll still be is that yeah. important to you yeah I'm I mean it's it's a really difficult balancing act because once you start I think it happens in in law firms as well once yeah. you start to be a manager you yeah. stop being a lawyer right and that's the thing that you're really that hopefully yeah. good at or the thing that you enjoy the most so it's trying to find that balance is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what's really exciting for me is that we've got this fantastic group of lawyers who are bringing these fantastic cases. They're mm. all super talented and enthusiastic. Um, and I can kind of be at the top end and give them a little bit of advice here or there. And mm. I see all the pleadings before they go out and all those yeah. sorts of things um, and do the more sort of strategic yeah. level. Um, so I do still do some law, but yeah, I don't get to roll my sleeves up and get into court quite as much or, you know. Yeah. But and, that's okay. Uh, and, and, and is it something, are you, again, as I've already said, you're so passionate about this. Is it something that is difficult to leave in the office? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I think anyone these days who has a kind of job that's quite full on, mm. you, you've probably got your work emails on your phone. Yeah. You know, it pops up with, you know, people call you at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Especially this thing when you're doing media stuff, you know, we'll get yeah. a phone call at midnight saying, can you do the Today programme at six o'clock in the morning? Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> that's just part of the job. Mm. Um, and so that can be quite intense. But when you're passionate about it, you don't mind too much. I mean, if I was in a job where I felt, you know, I was doing, um, and with greatest respect to tax lawyers, something boring <laughs> like tax law that doesn't interest me, yeah. perhaps, yeah. Um, then I might find it difficult to motivate myself to, you know, read an email on a Saturday morning. Mm. But when it's something where you think, you know, we're going to save some bison this week and they're not going to get killed because we're going to bring this case, then it's not too hard to motivate yourself to kind of, work the extra hours or yeah true I, but I imagine you don't get many thank you letters from bison well we don't get thank you letters from bison but we do get quite a lot of thank yous from members of the public with things like that you know and it's uh, I actually you know we don't do it for the thank yous no no <laughs> but, the but, nice but we do sometimes get them and and yeah people people do sort of say you know I'm really glad that you brought that case or that's always nice when when you get 
get that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, you're back to Brussels. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how do you mm-hmm. see the next five years panning out? Mm-hmm. Because we know there's a lot of uncertainty right now. Yeah. Um, and and whether, whether you're listening to this podcast, it's been 2019 or probably 2024, <laughs> there's probably still some, still uncertainty, some uncertainty around uh, uh, Europe. Yeah. But w- w- what do you see happening? Gosh, well, so I'm very lucky in that my case is completely focused towards the mainland EU. So okay. I don't have to worry too much. Right. So you so about you take your UK. eye off the UK now. Yeah, yeah. For my project, We're I don't safe. have to worry about the UK too much. Of course it affects us as an organisation. Mm. You know, we have a lot of staff here in London, mm. we have staff in Brussels, we have to move funds backwards and forwards, you know, there's all sorts of complications. Where's it going to go? I don't know. I think the EU is strong enough that it will carry on with or without the UK. I don't Mm. think, you know, there's sort of doom and gloom ideas that the whole EU is going to collapse. I don't think. I hope no one's listening to this in 2024. (laughs) I I think the EU is strong enough to to cope without the UK. And I think, you know, in some senses, not having the awkward one in the corner that was always, Mm. (laughs) you know, having a veto or being a bit difficult might be quite freeing for the EU. Yeah. It will also, I think, increase the power of some of the member states who are not the sort of old guard, the old kind of central three or four member mm. states. So, you know, we will watch that very closely. The influence of countries like Poland mm. might actually get greater with someone like the UK leaving. Yeah. Um, and Poland can sometimes be very good, but it can also sometimes be very... Mm. Uh, it can kind of pull the EU back on environmental issues. So... Mm you know there's a there's a, a risk there well i think you'll be incredibly envied by many people <laughs> listening to this somebody mm. in the job that they enjoy uh traveling around uh relishing the opportunity mm. um do you have any advice for people who have a particular passion mm. um no matter where they are in their career is it something you've ever looked back and thought you know what i wish i was sat in that office mm. sort of looking over the town center working on my i don't know plan of action for a commercial client yeah i i wouldn't go back to commercial practice for all the money in the world personally <laughs> but that's because it's just i just what do you really wouldn't mean then <laughs> <laughs> you really think Anna. um I, I i feel incredibly lucky to have the job that i've got and if you had told me 10 years ago that i would say right i'm gonna go and work at an ngo and then I'm going to work my way to finding, you know, I, this this mm. organisation didn't exist mm. when I first decided that I wanted to work for an organisation like this. So I've been incredibly lucky mm. that I found my way in here. Not all of it has been planned, you know, sometimes I've wandered into things that I wasn't expecting. But I think if you're really passionate about an area of law and you really want to do it, do it, mm. you know. And, and it may be that you can't do it full time. It might be that you have to do it pro bono on the side of your other practice, or it might be that you have to work your way to getting there and it takes a long time. You know, mm. it didn't happen overnight, as, yeah. you know, I've, as I've said. But yeah, it's, it's fantastic to be able to do something that I go home at night and I feel good about what I've done at work. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I honestly don't know how people who do things like restructuring debt and those sorts of things. <laughs> I would just make me want to cry into my cornflakes in the morning. But that's me. Well, that's coming up next week on the hearing. Uh, what we're talking to. Uh, um, no, thank you so much. On behalf of the bison and the nightingales, uh, uh, thank you for the work you're doing. And I'm so glad you're enjoying it. Aww. And it's great to see you. Thanks and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. The hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode.
The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.